Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah. Hope everybody's paying attention today because we have a friend in studio today, and his name is Wade Williamson. And he had a very, very interesting case uh, that happened to him in, in Charleston, South Carolina, a defense Self-defense case, right? Yes, sir. Self-defense. Did you ever think you would be in a situation like this in your life? Not at all. Um, I, I tell people, make no mistake about it, just because this story does involve, you know, a, a shooting. I'm not the type of guy that come from that background to say this was par for the course. I knew he'd wind up like that. Like, I was, I think I got in two fights my whole life. You know, I've always been the type of guy that would use comedy to relieve a situation or figure it's better if everybody could could get along. I would never be classified. I don't think anybody that knows me would classify me as like a violent type of guy. Um, but this situation that presented itself just kind of, it, it was on another level. And, you know, I do to this day. I think that it was a situation where it was him or me. And, you know, unfortunately, things played out the way they did. Um, obviously it's, I'm sure it was bad for his family as well. It was bad for my family. It was tragic all the way around, but looking back on it, I've never looked at it as, you know, and I've had people say, well, how does it know to, how does it feel that you've killed someone? And I said, well, I don't really look at it like that. I looked at it that I survived someone that was trying to kill me. So this guy was seeing your current wife, current you and your current wife had some issues. Mm -hmm. And he was seeing your current wife, and you met up at your house with this guy. Who is this guy, first of all, and walk me through what happened? I guess I'll just kind of start from the beginning. There were some things that happened, you know, in my life that kind of led to me and my wife separating. I was involved in a real bad car accident, I'd say around 2015. I messed up my back. That caused me to not lose the job that I had at the time, but I lost the position, which changed things dramatically in the work life. I worked for a company called Nucor Steel. A little bit further down the road, I actually was walking in, or I walked in right after a friend of mine had committed suicide, unfortunately. And ultimately, it was marriage problems that led it there. Um, so in my mind, because I'm already affected by the job change, I'm not bringing in quite as much money as I was, it started affecting me mentally. As, you know, guys take that personally if they feel like they're not the provider. And it led me to think that the best thing at the time was the split because me and my wife were arguing a great deal, but it was my idea to do it. And what we agreed on was we would split up and I would leave the house. But if the event that she met someone, then I would move back home and she would move out. And so we did that. And we split up around August of 2017. And at that point, the divorce is going forward. She's doing her thing. I'm doing mine. There's no bad. I mean, we're not getting along, obviously, but there's mm -hmm. no bad blood. We're not fighting. Because she was seeing someone, it was going to be, it was going to enable us to be able to get a quick divorce within 90 days, which is what we both wanted at that point. At that point, we wanted to get it behind us and move on. We wouldn't want to have to drag it out in court and go through the whole year separation thing. So we were fine with it. So it's not like I didn't know 
that she was seeing someone. Now, I did not know the guy. The guy was from out of state. I want to say he was from Pennsylvania. The situation of how he moved here was kind of crazy. He was a former veteran, but he spent some time in a mental institution for PTSD. He got out and somehow landed in Charleston. And then me and my wife didn't really talk much until Christmas time arose. And we were trying to figure out what we were going to do with the kids because I had two kids. And this was going to be the first time that we had had to deal with us being separated with the kids being involved. Mm -hmm. Um, I think at the end, looking back now, we needed some time apart. Probably didn't need a split. We just needed some time apart. Could tell, like I said, there was still something there. But at the same time, we weren't going to jump back into it because we didn't want to, you know, A, get the kids' hopes up and have to let them down again. We wanted to make sure it was something we were going to do. Now, how are the kids now? Now, 23 and 15. Okay. So then, and uh, maybe off a year or so, I'm, I'm horrible with dates. My, my daughter was a senior in high school when okay. all this transpired. And my son was obviously in elementary school. He's living with her at the residence. Now, we live in an area called Cane Bay, which if anybody's in Charleston, probably heard of Cane Bay. Mm-hmm. They live in a subdivision behind where I'm at. So we're all in the same neighborhood. I never talked with him. Um, you know, I didn't know anything about his past, anything about his situation. I'd have rather not known who he was. We get to around Easter. <clears throat> now we're into 2018. So I'd had this procedure done where they went in and they burned the nerve endings off of the spine. And it sounds painful, and it is painful, but it's, it, it really helps because basically what that does is it kills any nerve endings that you have so you can, you're free to bend over and you not feel like you're dying. So I'd had this done a few days prior to this. So I'm mobility is really limited and he knows this um, because I'm sure they had, it had come up in conversation. Once we go to her parents for Easter, we tell them that we're going to get back together. But now what's got to be done when we come back is I've got to tell the girl that I was seeing that, you know, calling her off and getting back together with the wife. And she's obviously got to tell him, Hey, I'm getting back with the husband. I didn't talk to her Friday night, but my son had a soccer game Saturday morning. And so I go to the soccer game. Obviously, I'm, you know, kind of waiting on what she's going to tell me. And she's like, I really didn't get a chance to talk to him. She said he come in and went straight to bed, said he wasn't feeling good. So she's, I didn't even get a chance to bring it up. So Saturday evening is when she mentions it. And things over there just go a little, a little haywire, basically, I guess is the best way to say it. And he's under the impression that, you know, he's been, I guess, lied to. And, you know, he's, he's obviously upset about that. So he reaches out to me to have a conversation at a mutual friend's house. that's like four houses down from mine. So that's kind of how, you know, we went from the split up to we get back together to him finding out that we're, you know, we're going to rekindle and then he wants to meet. That's kind of the lead up to how we got to that point. This community is like, it's kind of like its own little, it's kind of like a little housewife community or something, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I moved there in 2010, it had three neighborhoods. One was a retirement home. Now I think it's got like six or seven. I mean, okay. it is blue slam up during that time. It probably had four or five. So even though we're living in the same neighborhood, it can still take me 10 or 15 minutes to get to their house with all the stopping and the starting and the turning. But it's still convenient because, you know, we had to keep in mind we did have kids. And, you know, as far as transporting and stuff, I mean, if you know, you live here in Charleston, it can take you, you know, a long time to get, you know, 10 minutes up the road. I can turn mm-hmm. into a 45 minute trip. So we were taking that into account too. You know, that was, that was the most important thing. Even though we were having issues, we were trying to look at what was going to make it easiest for the kids but that's why when this thing kind of came to a head that night, everything was, we were all close together. So it's not like, 
you know, there was a lot of time to be, you know, had back and forth. And when he got upset, what really kind of led it to him being at the friend of mine's house was once she told him and he got upset, he was making her ride around the neighborhood to look for me, to yeah. confront me and ask me about it. Well, my wife at that time knew I wasn't home. <clears throat> now, if he's making your wife drive around to look for you, I mean, isn't that kind of weird in itself? That's, I mean, technically, depending on how deep you want to get into it, that's kidnapping if you're holding somebody against their will and making them do something they didn't want to do. Yeah. But this guy was a pretty intimidating figure. And I think more than anything, he probably scared her. We It's kind of been a situation where, like, I let her tell me what she wants of what happened that night. Uh-huh. But we haven't really dove into it 100%. We've kind of, whatever she wants to keep to herself, I've let her keep to herself. What year was this exactly? This was 2018, like the weekend after Easter. So I'd say, I want to say I put it around the night. Gotcha. Now, had you talked to this guy prior? I had seen him one time at a gas station. Um, obviously, I knew what he drove because when I would have to go over there and pick up my son or drop my son off, you know, his vehicle was in the driveway. So I knew what he drove. I kind of knew what he looked like because I'd seen him in the car and, you know, passing. But the only time I actually ever had a conversation with him was one time at a gas station and I was pumping gas. He pulled up and he got out and I was pretty sure it was him, but I wasn't a hundred percent. And he was kind of looking at me and he's like, you know who I am? And I was like, I said, well, I didn't. And I was like, but I do now. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of, you know, I know this was awkward or whatever. And it was really, we kind of, you know, basically broke balls back and forth. And he was like, you know, we're having issues or whatever at the time. I think they were arguing. I was like, I was kind of laughing off. I'm like, that's your problem now, boss. Like, you got to deal with that. Yeah. And so it was kind of a, a joking type thing, but that was the extent of it. We never really had a, you know, a relationship outside of that. So you, he comes to your house. Well, first he goes to the friend's house. Friend's now, house. Okay. When they, when they were riding around, he was making her look for me. We got a mutual friend that lives about five houses down from me. Yeah. Well, he's in his garage and he sees my wife's car pull up. So he's thinking that, you know, it's not strange for her to pull up because his son and my son were friends. They would hang out quite a bit. So he comes up to the car and they roll the window down and he sees the guy in the back. And he knew the situation. He knew the dynamic that we had split up. So he was, you know, none of this was odd to him. Mm -hmm. But when he sees the guy in the passenger seat, he walks up and he's like, hey, what's going on? I'm looking for Chip when I find him because when I find him, I'm going to fucking kill him. Now, Chip is a name that some people call me from back home. I grew up in a town called Darlington, South Carolina, uh-huh. and a lot of people knew me by that name. So if I refer to myself as Chip, that's where that's coming from. So when he says that, the guy's kind of like, okay, well, something's going on, obviously. And he said he could tell that my wife was, you know, looked upset. Yeah. So at that point, they have a conversation, and the guy agrees to come back to his house because mm-hmm. he's trying to basically separate them to figure out what's going on and try to mediate the situation. What happens is they leave, they go back to where my wife was staying. That guy gets in his car and comes back to that residence. In the middle of this, that guy calls me on the phone and he's like, hey, where are you at? And I told him I was at a friend's house in the neighborhood. And he's like, listen, he's like, I don't know what's going on. Liam's upset. Felicia looks upset. The guy's name was Liam. He said, "Uh, she's upset. He said, if you ride by my house and you see his car here, don't stop. I'm just letting you know that I'm trying to figure out what's going on. So in my mind, I already know probably why he's upset because he got the news that, you know, we were getting back together. But I was just like, all right. I was like, you know, just I'm going home. I'm not, I'm not even coming by there. 
So that's kind of how he got to that point. Well, I go back to my house. Now we're talking 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, at some point, he tells that guy that he's going home. He doesn't go home. He goes back to where my wife is. My wife's under the impression that he wasn't coming back there. So they start arguing again. I don't know to the extent of the physicality, but at some point I find out days later that he did headbutt her. He did put holes in the wall. He did smash her phone because after I would say middle of the day, I never heard from my wife again through phone. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out why the reason was he had smashed her phone. Yeah. I didn't actually hear from her until my daughter got off work at probably around 11 o'clock when she got home. My wife used her phone to call me and she was like, he's at uh, Jamie's. He's good. I'm just letting you know he's okay, but he smashed my phone. That's why I couldn't call you. So she was nonchalant about the smash of the phone? I mean, she wasn't nonchalant about it. You could tell it was upset, but I I think it was just the fact that that he was gone was the relief. Like he was out of the house. And my friend Jamie's a pretty big guy too. Like he can handle himself if... If need be. Now, what did this guy? What did this guy do for a living? When he met my wife, he told her that he had a government job, and he would leave every day, and he would go to some farm that he was helping his buddy work on. And I guess you could say that was employment for a period of time, but it mm-hmm. wasn't like a full time gig. As time went on, and they got into a relationship, my wife started uncovering things about him that you know he wasn't one hundred percent honest about. So he really didn't have like a job that he checked into mm-hmm. every day. And I mean, part of that, you know, could have possibly been because he was diagnosed with, with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like I said, I didn't know a ton about the guy. The dynamic of the PTSD and that is very, very interesting that the way you're convicted, was that ever taken into account of his former life? When they started investigating this, they realized that he was former military. They realized he was diagnosed with PTSD and he was prescribed a lot of pain, or not pain pills, but... Uh, like Prozac, I don't know what you yeah. classify uh, that depression as. Depression medicine. Depression medicine. Okay, yeah. There you go. Yeah. He was prescribed a lot of those, which he was on the night everything happened. Plus, he was on alcohol, um, three times the legal limit in alcohol after they finally got the blood test back. And he was also uh, using a cycle of steroids. Gotcha. So that combination there in itself is, is pretty deadly. Um, it was almost the outside of the depression meds. The guy that I talked about earlier that mentioned suicide was on a lot of those same things. He was apparently a bigger guy at some point, lost a lot of weight. So his solution to, you know, clear up the sagging skin was to bulk up and gain muscle. And he was on steroids and his wife believes that him, you know, doing that was a contributor. That was a contributing factor. So a lot of the same things, you know, in this guy was in the the former friend of mine that, you know, passed away. You know, I just dealt with my lawyer mainly on the situation when it happened as far as what they found and what they took into account i don't know but i mean i would like to think the police would looked into that at some point i mean i don't know how you couldn't you couldn't ignore yeah. those types of things yeah because i mean it's a major issue uh mm-hmm. and i don't think it's addressed properly uh i think we try to put a band-aid mm-hmm. on most things in society so i mean it's uh that's interesting so it's, you said it's about 10 o'clock at night now it's probably around 11 11 um, o'clock at night okay yeah, 11 and what happens is when he leaves and goes back to where my wife's at, someone apparently calls Jamie, the friend. And so he's like, you know, I thought he was going somewhere else to stay the night. So he gets in his car and he goes over there to try to see what's going on. Again, I don't know all this is going on. I'm at my house. I'm watching the UFC. I get a text message from the guy's phone, Liam. Yeah. And he's like, hey, are you up? I text back. I said, yeah, I'm up. He said, can we talk? I said, yeah, we can talk. And he's like, 
we can go to Jamie's if you're comfortable with it. He's like, I just got a few questions, and I feel like you'll be honest with me and give me the answers. And so I agreed. And what had happened was Jamie went there to try to, like, man, I thought you said you were going to leave. You weren't supposed to come back over here. The kids are here. His agreeance was, he's like, I'll leave if you can get Chip over here so I can ask him some questions. So that's kind of how it played out. So I leave, and I go to his house, which is seven houses down from mine. I could have walked, but it was, you know, a little chilly, so I drove. And basically what it was, was he wanted to know, had we been seeing each other prior to him getting the news that we were getting back together? And I mean, I'll say it was probably hostile in the beginning. Like he was mad and I was a little upset. And, you know, I was, I told him point blank. I'm like, yes, you know, that's still my wife or it's really none of your fucking business if we've been seeing each other or not. But to answer your question, no, because at this point, I don't want to upset him more and send him back over there to where my kids are, where he could do something out of the way. So I'm lying to him trying to, you know, diffuse the situation. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much he can ask. You know, I mean, he can ask, hey, were you seeing each other? And I say no, and that's, that's kind of it. You know, what more are you going to get out of me if I'm not giving you what you want? And the conversation really turned. I know this is odd, but the conversation turned from that to really three dudes just hanging out in the garage. Now, granted, the situation is a little strange, but these guys started talking about their military career. My friend was a Coast Guard. Um, the Liam done some time, I think it was in the army. I was never, I never served, so I couldn't, you know, contribute anything to that conversation. But we started talking about our kids. Like it turned in from what could have been like a, a violent situation to mm-hmm. really three dudes hanging out in the garage. And that went on for probably two and a half, three hours. We're probably three in the morning, two thirty, three in the morning at this point in time. And Jamie's like, all right, I'm tired. Like I'm going to bed. Mm-hmm. And he asked Liam, he said, are you going to stay here or you need somebody to run you home? And he said, no, nah, I'll go on back home. And so he looks at me and he said, do you mind running me home? When he's saying home, he's talking about where my wife lives at. And I'm like, I said, if that's where you want to go. And in my mind, I don't really want to send him there. But, yeah. you know, he's that's what he's saying. He's like, he's like, yeah, I'll be fine. So he tells Jamie, he's like, I'll just have him run me home. So Jamie kind of looks at me and he's like, you good with that? And I said, yeah, I'm good with that. Because by this point, I mean, we went hours Nothing's been hostile. Nothing's been, you know, argumentative. No, no tempers have flared. And so he shuts his garage and we get in my car and he said, you know, if I go home, we're going to start arguing again. And I was like, pal, I lived with her for, you know, uh, at that point, maybe 15 years. I was like, so I know how, you know, it can be. You ain't got to tell me. And he's like, do you care if we just go back to your house? He's like, I don't really want to go home. And so for a minute, I, I thought like, I don't know, I'm going back to my house. I'm, I'm by myself. Like if he tries anything, but like, I just felt that the situation was okay. I felt we were at a good place. Mm-hmm. So I turn and I pull into my driveway. And again, like I said, seven houses down and he starts telling me this story. And he says, you know why I wear this bracelet and not this bracelet, but uh, you know, one he had on. And I'm like, man, I don't really know anything about you. And he starts telling me the story about a guy he was in combat with and the guy got shot in the head and he was doing what he could to save him, but they said that he didn't do something the right way, and he got kicked out of the army. That's why he was discharged. That's why he's got PTSD, and that's one of the things wrong with him, why he takes his medication. And while he's saying this, he's crying. He's, yeah. he's got tears coming down his face. At that point, I'm thinking this dude just might need somebody to talk to. Yeah. Like he's, yeah. he's now getting, he knows he's getting the boot. He's obviously got these issues. I can see that the bracelet did have the guy's name on it. He's telling me the story. And when you cry in front of another guy, like there's no bigger tell that you're letting your emotions down. You're letting your guard down than if you shed tears in front of another guy, especially somebody that's not your family. And so when he says this, 
you know, I'm just kind of taken back and I'm listening and I'm talking to him. What actually happened, and I found this out later, he was, he made it like he was in battle with the guy. What actually happened was he was intelligence. He gave this guy bad intel that led him into a situation where the guy got shot in the head and he did kill him. That's why he was kicked out of the army. So at that point, we go in my house. And this is, you know, again, probably like I said, 3.30 something. I had security cameras. They seen us going in. We go in. We're just talking. We're talking about his kids. We're talking about my kids. How old was he at the time? How old were you? I want to say I was around 35 and he was 34. 34. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere around that variation. I got to be honest. I, that time period for me is very hazy, but we're both mid thirties. I think I was a year older than him. And so we're, you know, sitting in there just kind of making small talk. And he does, he's like, he's like, let's have a drink. And at that point, the guy didn't seem to be drunk to me, but I didn't know him. He seemed to be carrying himself well. He wasn't stumbling or staggering. And so we act, we break out a bottle. I'm a red stag drinker. That's my favorite go-to drink, uh, black mm-hmm. cherry Jim Beam. So we take that out. We do a shot. We're talking about, you know, different things. We're talking about our kids. We get on the subject of, you know, some of my friend's moms, you know, that he's met throughout living, you know, with my wife for a period of time. And he's like, yeah, she's always got something to say about people with tattoos. He's like, she ever say anything to you? And I'm like, no, I'm covered in them. And I kind of move my shirt to show this one here. Yeah. And if you can see, you see right here? Yeah. There's open heart surgery scar right there. Yeah. So he sees that when I pull down my shirt to show him this tattoo. And he's like, man, what happened there? Kind of pulls it down. I said, I had open heart surgery back in 2001. Yeah. And uh, he's like, just kind of shakes his head. And he pulls up my shirt from the bottom, like to see the whole scar. Well, at this point, there's no way he don't see the gun because it's on my hip. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of elaborate on the gun for a minute because a lot of people say, well, what would you have a gun on you for? Whatever. Look, I'm from the South. Like <laughs> when I was 18 years old, I bought yeah. my first shotgun. When I was 21 years old, I bought my first handgun. Yeah. You know, I've got multiple guns in the house, you know, rifles, pistols, shotguns. I had a CWP. I was licensed to carry it. I had been trained, you know, by the class and I took it at a ATP gun shop in Somerville. So to me, when I left the house every day, it was wallet, keys, phone, gun. That's just part of the deal. And when I left that night, I took it. Well, when we got back, I never took my gun off until I go upstairs to lay down. All my bedrooms in the house are upstairs. So I never got to a point to take it off. So it's still on me. Well, when he lifts up that shirt, he doesn't mention it. He doesn't acknowledge it, but there's no way he can't see that it's there. And he's like, man, and he's looking at that scar and he's like, if you and I had been met under different circumstances, he said, we'd probably be good ass friends. Yeah. And he does this bear hug number, you know, especially if guys have been, you know, had a little bit, they'll kind of hug you, pick you up and put you right back down. Yeah. He did that. And I thought it was a little odd given the situation. Yeah. But I didn't think much more about it. And he's like, where's your bathroom at? So I point him down the bathroom. And at this point in time, I haven't checked in with anyone. The last thing my wife knew was that I was going over there to meet them at Jamie's house. So I send her a text really quick. And I'm just like, hey, just letting you know everything's good. We're back at my house now. And then I'm standing there against my stove, kind of got my arms crossed, my back's to the stove. He comes out of the bathroom, rounds the corner into the kitchen, and I'm standing there up against the stove, and he doesn't say a word. First thing he does, he walks straight up to me, and bam, he comes up with his left hand, 
goes up under me like that. It lifts me up off the floor. Like part of it's me jumping too, but like he's lifting me up off the floor. I go up onto the stove and I'm still just like, what the hell? This is coming out of nowhere. And he's looking me dead in my eyes and he looks, I mean, we locked eyes and like, I didn't think gray was an eye color, and I, yeah. I, but it, like his eyes look gray. They look blank. And he says, I'm going to fucking kill you. And so I was able to slide off the stove because it's like a flat top stove. I was able to slide off the stove and get back on my feet. He brings up his knee to try to like knee me in the side. I turned my body as best I could to block it. And I told him, I was like, I said, if you don't get the fuck off me, I'm going to shoot you. And he cocks his right hand back. He's coming across and I kind of, I see it coming. I know what he's doing. And I try to lift up as much as I can. And he kind of clips the bottom of my chin. When he does that, he's holding here, swings this way. He lets go, kind of stumbles over to the side. He's already coming back at me. And at this point, I'm in a corner in my kitchen. I pull out the gun and I shoot. Apparently I shot three times. It was so loud and it was so quick. To me, it was, it sounded like twice. Yeah. But either way, he drops. First time I'd ever shot any, you know, anyone in that capacity. It's always been, you know, training, target practice, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So, like, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what just happened. You know, he immediately falls back. There was no other interaction between us. He falls back. I'm, you know, just kind of collect my thoughts. I pick up the phone. I call 911. There's portions of the 911 call online that you can actually find. And I tell him, I'm like, look. And this is the point of emphasis, too, that a lot of people key in. And I say, well, he called him his friend. I didn't know what else to say. I called 911. I don't have time to say, well, let me tell you our relationship before you come over yeah. here. He's, he's, got, he's shot in the floor. I'm trying to help him out yeah. to try to get was somebody. Was he making any sounds way. or anything? He was making sounds, but that was it. He, he was never moaning. Yeah, it was a moan. I think I, I've heard to it referred to as like the death moan or the death rattle. Yeah. But it was just, you know, that was it. There was never another word that come out. Yeah. And so the 911 operator basically walks me through. She's like, where's he shot? And I was like, I said, I'm assuming the chest. Everything was center mass. She's like, can you see the bullet wound? So I go, I pull up his shirt. I see it. She tells me to go get a towel to put it over the wounds. I run to the bathroom that he had just come out of, grab the towel. I'm placing it over the wounds. I'm doing everything she's telling me to do in the 911 call. Then she said the officer's outside. She said, where's the gun? I said, the gun's in the house. She said, unload it, place it where it can be seen, and go outside with your hands up. So I go outside. I'm still on the phone because I've watched all this body cam footage back. I've gotten it since then. I come out, and, you know, the cop, he, he didn't say you're under arrest. He said, we're putting you in handcuffs till we can figure out what's going on. You're not under arrest. And so I tell him where he's at. This is At this point now, it's probably 6 in the morning. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how much time has passed since we first got together. So another officer pulls up about that same time. They actually put me in her car. Then they both go in the house in there for a period of time. And then it's just like clockwork, another cop car, another cop car, another SUV. Then finally an ambulance and the whole street is lined with cop cars out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, and this is a neighborhood similar to what you're in. Houses are pretty close together. So obviously everybody's looking out their blinds, mm -hmm. seeing what's going on. Nobody really knows. And I'm not a guy that would have the cops called either. So they're, mm -hmm. they're really knowing something's wrong with all these cop cars. And eventually they do take him out. Um, he was transported to Trident Hospital. He didn't make it. He did. Uh, now, was he still alive when he left? He was alive technically, if you want to use, I guess, go with the terms of bodily functions. But from... 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and, and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed. The reports that I got that by the time he arrived at the hospital, they gave him a less than 1% chance of living. All the bullets were center mass. Two of them were through and through. One stayed in. Now, the two that were through and through were crucial to this whole case because it proved where I was standing in my kitchen. I'm backed up into the corner. One of them goes, it goes through, it hits the refrigerator door and then ricochets and hits the wall in my kitchen. The other one, I've got a 24-pack of water sitting right beside my refrigerator. It goes through the water and lands in one of the bottles in that 24-pack of water. So it proves the direction of where I'm standing, mm -hmm. in, in a sense. And that would come out to be key later, because when they were doing their investigation, the cops didn't even find that bullet. I found it. The one in the water. The one in the water. Okay. I found it, and it had to notify them to come <clears throat> back out. Mm-hmm. So as this is going on, a, a cop does come up to me and read me my rights and ask me if I want to answer any questions. So at that point, I said, no, I'm not answering anything without a lawyer. So now in my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to jail. But I'm still not thinking that I'm in trouble. I'm thinking that they're probably just a formality, but they're going to understand what's going on. And then, you know, everything will be done. Now, when they put me in the car, I don't know if I was just that flexible, if it was adrenaline or whatever, but they didn't take my phone. So I was actually able to text my wife and tell her somewhat of what happened. Yeah. Even though it was behind my back, I could twist it and see it and do it mm -hmm. with my thumbs. So she shows up. I do see her pull up. And I'm in this car, man, for what seemed like hours. Um, and then I finally, like, I got to the point where I had to use the bathroom. So I noticed I kind of motioned to one of the cops. I said, you know, I've got to use the bathroom. And he's like, you're going to have to hold it. And I'm like, brother, there's no hold. Like, it's either going to be in this car I can do it in the yard, but like, I got to go. And so they let me in the house 
He's like, this is your home? And I said, yeah, I live here. This is my house. So they made me change clothes. They take everything I was wearing that morning, I think except for like my underwear and socks. They take my boots, shirt, pants, the whole nine yards, and let me change. And then at that point, he's like, is there somewhere you can go while we finish doing our investigation? So now it's like, you're not under arrest. You're getting in the car. Now they read me my rights. They're telling me I'm under arrest. Now at this point, is there somewhere you can go while we finish our investigation? So everything's up, down, up, down. And so now I'm thinking, all right, they're piecing this together. They're understanding what's going on. They're not going to take me in. So I said, yeah, there's a, a friend of mine around the corner. I gave him the address, told him that's where I would be. I go around there. Probably an hour later, cop comes pulling up and he's like, we're done with what we got to do with the house. He said, when can you come in and answer some questions? I said, well, I'm not coming in without a lawyer. And he was like, who's your lawyer? Well, at the time I was using my divorce lawyer. So I gave him his name. Guy was actually a former cop. And so he was like, we know him. He's like, we'll, you know, set up a time for you to come in and answer the questions. And I was like, so I'm free to go back to the house. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, is there any mess? Like, what do y'all got to do about that? And he said, we don't do nothing with that. He said, that's on you. So when I go back to the house, I'm not really sure what to expect. There's nothing. There's nothing on the floor. Like a little bit, just slight little bit of smeared blood on the floor, on the hardwoods. And that's it. That's it. No blood, nowhere. It's not like the movies where when you shoot, you see it fly all over the yeah. walls. It wasn't like that. Now, again, these were regular full metal jacket rounds. These weren't like hollow point bullets mm -hmm. or anything like that. But I got what was on that floor up. I Actually, I think my mom got it up. She had been notified about everything and came down. My mom got it up in like one paper towel. And so at this point, I'm trying to wrap my head around everything. Adrenaline is still wide open. I do get the word around this time, I think, that he had passed away. Because mm -hmm. it had been a few hours since he left. So now I'm wrapping my head around the fact that he is, he did pass away. And the next day I call my lawyer and he's like, come in tomorrow morning. He's like, we'll answer the questions and we'll set up something with, you know, to, to go talk to them. What he did was he took my statement and then he sent a message to the police and was like, let me know everything that you're going to ask him. Mm -hmm. And when they sent him the questions, he just sent my statement back and he said, everything you want to know is in the statement. And so that was it. I'm thinking I'm good. This is Monday. I'm thinking everything's good. He's like, yep, don't, seems open and shut to me. He's under the impression everything's good. So I'm thinking I'm all right. Tuesday evening, he gives me a call. This is probably, and this again, this all happened early Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. So Monday I meet with him. We give him the questions. Tuesday evening about 4.30, he calls me. He's like, hey, I got some bad news. And that is not ever something you want your lawyer to tell you when he yeah. gives you a call is I yeah. got bad news. And he's like, they're going to charge you with murder. And I'm like, why? And he was like, don't know. They didn't tell me. He's like, they just said they're going to charge you with murder. He's like, the only thing I can figure is they're going to try to spin this as like a, a love triangle thing. And you killed him to get your wife back. And I'm like, well, do they know that like we were getting back together anyway? Like, it, I don't need to kill the guy. Like, you know, me and my wife are getting back together. I'm not the one with the problem. That guy had the problem because he was the one getting left. Yeah. I was like, they got the right idea. They just got the situation flipped. Yeah. And he's like, they didn't tell me why. He's like, they just tell me to charge you. He said, you got to turn yourself in tomorrow at 12 o'clock. So I'm like, all right, I'll call you back. So I hang up with him. I start calling everybody I know. Like, who do I need to call? Who, you know, I've never been in a situation before. I start getting one name. Every time, every person I call, one name. Andy Savage. Andy Savage. Now, is this Charleston County? Berkeley County. Berkeley County. Yep. So I call, leave a message for his answer machine. By then, it's like 5, 5.30. They, they probably left the office. I get a phone call from his secretary, and I tell her, 
you know, what the situation is. And she's like, can you come tomorrow, you know, three o'clock? I'm like, ma'am, I'm supposed to turn myself in in jail at 12. That ain't gonna work. And she's like, be here at seven in the morning. His office that morning is me, my mother, and my wife. Go in there, tell him the story. He's like, you know, okay, give me the, give me the rundown. So I kind of give everything to the point, kind of like I'm giving you here. And he looks at me and he goes, so why are we here? And I'm like, because apparently I need a lawyer. And he's like, no, I mean, with what, what you're telling me, he said, provided everything you're telling me is true. He's like, why are we here? He's like, this seems like open and shut. I said, well, I would think so, but I don't know. I can't tell you. And he's like, is it an election year or somebody trying to prove a point? Like, I don't understand it. And he's like, and he referenced, he's like, he said, the people that I have on my team are the best. He's like, so if you're not being truthful with me about something, they'll find out. Yeah. I'm like, everything I'm telling you is 100% accurate, spot on. There's no, there's no wiggle room in anything. Yeah. And so he's like, all right, what we're going to do is he said, I'm going to try to see if I can get your surrender push back. So he gets a, he talks to someone. I don't know who he talks to. They want me to turn myself in Wednesday at 12 o'clock. It gets eventually pushed all the way back until Sunday. Now, what that does is that gives him time to prepare a statement to try to get me a bond. So we get a lot of character letters written. He gets a statement written. I turn myself in on Sunday evening, um, and which was, you know, strange. I basically went to church that morning, and then I tell, you know, my wife and mom, like, take me to jail. And they went and dropped me off, and I went in. And I went in not knowing if I'm going to come back out because getting bombed for murder isn't typical either. A lot of times mm-hmm. they'll keep you in there. Luckily, I did. I went in on Sunday. I seen had a bond hearing on Monday. Now, we go in, and the state's obviously trying to present their case of why I'm a danger to the community. My lawyer's saying that this is a, you know, a one-time incident. It was self-defense. I should be able to be granted bond. You know, great work history with the same company for 15 years. Again, like I said, I worked at Newcore Steel. They didn't give an, a, a, an answer right then. Yeah. I've always heard if anybody's, you know, watched anything on TV, when somebody's applying for bond, they even say bond granted or bond denied. She looks, you know, at us in the courtroom and she's like, I'll make my decision and let you know and bangs the gavel. So I'm standing beside him. I'm cuffed up, wrist to wrist, wrist to ankle. And I'm looking, and I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And he's like, I guess that means she'll let us know. And so they're shuffling me off to the back, back there with everybody else that's being waiting to be seen by trial. So I didn't know what was going on. Luckily, about, I'd say, an hour, I get moved back to the holding cell. I called my wife, and apparently, I guess, between that time, they had already said that they were going to give me bond. So I wound up having to do one more day in jail, those are some stories in that, you know, by itself. Yeah. But I do get out, and at that point, it just becomes fighting the case, which roughly took around five years. So when you're in jail, you know, this was what, a week? You you said a week? And- well, it was a week from they charged me. I was actually only in jail for two days. I went in on Sunday. I seen- But from when the incident happened, it was... Yeah, it was a week later. A week later. Mm-hmm. So what was going through your head? I mean, how did you feel? I mean, what were you thinking internally? I mean, what was going on? Man, it was so crazy because like I didn't have a chance to process one situation before another one happened. Yeah. So I didn't have a chance to process the shooting until I found out that the gentleman didn't make it. So now I got to process the death. Now I've also got to process everything else going on. I'm trying to shield what's going on for my kids. Obviously in a you know, a community like Cane Bay, words spread and rumors are spreading of what people think happened and thought happened and all kind of nonsense that was nowhere near true. So I'm trying to kind of keep my hand on that. Also come down myself because my adrenaline's pumping. You know, two days later, now I find out I'm getting charged with murder. So obviously now the focus is on that. 
yeah. trying to protect myself from that. So I never had a chance really to kind of wrap my mind around any facet of that case. And then when I found out I was being charged, like that became my focus for five years, Yeah, you know, of, of keeping myself out of jail. Interesting. So when they brought this case against you or this charge against you, was there any details behind the, the rationale or any thought process? Did you ever find out anything about that? The best that I can decipher from everything that happened is when we got to the preliminary hearing, which is basically the first hearing you have after an arrest to find out if there's enough information to go forward with a, a trial. The detective, she was a female detective. She had just gotten promoted and I was her first murder case. Now, I want to make this clear. When I say female, I'm not harping on the fact that she was a female and females can't do this job. I mm. absolutely believe that females can be capable detectives. However, I will say that this one was not a capable one mm -hmm. because she made a number of mistakes. Number one, leaving the bullet behind. Number two, she lied about three or four different things on the stand in that preliminary hearing. Some of them weren't huge deals, but it was still lies. She said that when I come out of the house, when the officer got there, that I locked myself out of the house. Well, if I locked myself out of the house, how the hell is he going to go in? Mm -hmm. The door was wide open. Felt like she was trying to paint me as someone that was panicked or, or whatever, which I was panicked, but you know, for different reasons, she said that when she went to the other residence, which is where my wife was, apparently that's where he had shot up some steroids that night. He had shot two vials of steroids. Yeah. She said that she collected one vial when she filled out the report detailing she collected two vials of steroids from his trash yeah. from the trash can so it's like not necessarily huge lies but still lies on on the stand on a murder case and you know it, it was some other stuff that she had, she twisted up and told the truth on and that the basis of their case was they were saying that they didn't believe my story and that we were in close proximity because there was no blood on me and mm -hmm. i was wearing a white long sleeve t-shirt and they said, we don't see how there could be no blood on him if they were in that close proximity. So they were trying to say that we were further apart. And I basically just shot him and made the story up. After this, you know, is, is laid out in court, the judge almost, I swore she almost threw it out. She even said, she said, there's not a lot here. But she said, given the situation, I'll bind it to trial. So at that point, Andy brings this investigator in from New York. His name is John Pellucci. He's a CSI guy that's all he's done is csi forensics his, his whole life he goes in and he puts in those little lasers that you would probably see on like csi and stuff like that the trace bullet pass mm -hmm. it goes from the wall to the refrigerator to back to the corner where i'm standing again it backs up the story of i told him where i was standing he also runs these tests about like back spatter was blood spatter on you one of the things they didn't account for was the gentleman was wearing three shirts he had on like a regular t-shirt. He had on like a wicking, like Under Armour shirt. And then another like hoodie shirt over that. So if you shoot someone in the chest mm -hmm. three times, blood is not going to have a chance to transfer back because it's not going to come through all those articles of clothing. Now, again, it's a lot to do with where you shoot him. Obviously, if I shoot him in the head, yeah, blood's going to go everywhere. Mm -hmm. Didn't. Everything was, was center mass. Then he fell immediately back. So there was not a chance for the blood to transfer. Now, their whole thing was they thought he was in a further distance from where I'm at. If I paint this picture to you, when you had those two impacts, you had one on the, the right side of the refrigerator, the other one went into the water. These bullets had a chance to V, 
mm-hmm. when they went through. They had a chance to separate. Had he been further back, not only would he have been up against the refrigerator, because my kitchen's not that wide. We're talking maybe as wide as this room, not even. If he'd have been further back, they would have went through and hit almost side to side. It was evident that he was so close to me because when they went through, that's when they had a chance to separate and go their own ways. Yeah. So they built a case built on basically what the evidence contradicted mm-hmm. and which, which was baffling to me and baffling to the CSI. He's like, I don't even know why they're, they're making this a point of emphasis. He's like, the evidence shows that, you know, they had a chance to V off. And he's mm-hmm. like, you're not going to get back spatter if someone's wearing three clothes. So it's like everything they based it on was basically BS. And so be that as it may, the case was bound to trial. So the next step was an immunity hearing based on castle law and self-defense, which is where we were going to present that evidence that I just talked to you about. The guy put up a PowerPoint. And even one thing that they mentioned, I forgot to to tag this, she was even trying to basically say that there wasn't even a struggle between us, that it was just, you know, I shot. Mm -hmm. Well, that guy pulled up the first arriving officer's body cam footage, and you see a knocked-over shot glass, which was the, the drink that I told you we had shared. One of them was on the floor in the kitchen, yeah. There was another knocked over glass on the counter. Like you could see there were things knocked over, mm-hmm. evident of a struggle. And so we had all that prepared. We're waiting for an immunity hearing date. Then COVID comes. So that puts everything to a halt. There's no court cases. There's nobody having court. You know, it just kind of puts everything at a, a standstill. And they asked Andy if he wanted to do anything over Zoom or Skype. And he's like, absolutely not. I don't do that. And he asked me, he was like, you know, are you good with waiting? At this time, right after everything happened, Nucor fired me. Took my 401k out that I had, cashed it out, paid the lawyer in full just so he was good. I paid the people that had put up the money for my bond because my bond was $15,000, which was a low bond for murder. It was 100000 for the murder charge, 50000 for the weapons charge that they gave me. So it was 15000 total. I paid the people back to put up my bond. You know, part of why it took so long, five years, because... You know, the court system slowed down. And in between this time, like I'm on house arrest. I can't go anywhere. I can't leave the state. I can't. The only thing I could really do was attend my son's uh, activities as far as games and stuff like that. And that was it. I could go to my lawyer, doctor, church, and that was it. Your stress level was off the charts the whole time? Through the roof, man. I couldn't. The way I dealt with it, I didn't go to drugs or alcohol or whatever. I buried myself in anything that I was doing. Yeah. So I was having to carry my son to these, you know, football practices. I knew the coaches. They knew me. I became a coach. Okay. I I devoted a lot of time to that. Once the podcast started, that was really like my therapy. Yeah. Because it spent, I had to spend so much time working on it, learning it, figuring things out. I had to keep my mind busy in order to keep from going crazy. And mm-hmm. I'm still like, even though now that it's over, I'm still like that. I'm mm-hmm. still like, I don't know if you would call it ADD if, if I've developed it or whatever, but like, I can't, I feel like mentally I can't slow down because if I slow down, I start to, you know, get in my thoughts and then start to get depressed. And mm-hmm. that's really what, what it was then because, you know, you're waiting to figure out if this thing is going to go to trial, your life's hanging in the balance. So it was like, I always told people, it's like saying you're going to the doctor and figuring out if you're going to have terminal cancer. Yeah. And I was like, all right, we'll run the test. We'll let you know. Now, now your kids, I mean, how are your kids, how did they deal with it? And how did they feel during the whole situation? 
My son was so young that I really don't think he grasped what was going on. He had obviously heard the, you know, he couldn't really hide it from hearing it. It was the chatter. Because you of the said schools. he hung out with the guy's son as well. The, not the, not the guy that I shot some, but the guy whose house we were. Oh, at. okay. Yeah, um, that guy. He had kids, but they weren't here. His whole none of his family was here. All of his okay. people was from Pennsylvania. So the chatter around the school in the neighborhood was obviously you couldn't stop that. So he knew that it happened, but I think he was just at such a young age. His mind was, you know, well, my dad's home. Nothing's wrong. And yeah. he, it was business as usual for him because he was young. My daughter, on the other hand, was graduating high school. Yeah. So right after this happened, they did give me permission to go to her graduation, but then I had to come back home immediately. So we go to that, and I'm watching her walk across that stage, and I can't even like enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Because in my mind, I'm wondering, am I going to get to see my son walk across that stage? Mm-hmm. You know, am I, is this every moment that you experience, you're wondering if this is the last one? Is this my last birthday, free man, Christmas, free man, Easter, free man? So it's like, even though you're out, which I was grateful to be out and not be in jail because some people don't get that opportunity, it was still bad because you're you're not able to enjoy any moment. And my daughter knew what was going on. It affected her some too, I'm sure. But I tried to be the the strong back and, and carry most of the load, not let a lot of them see that it was, it was bothering me as much as it did. So the wife, how about her? I mean, how did she deal with it? She, she took it bad. Um, you know, she, she blamed herself a lot for it. And he saw the gun would take time, go to the bathroom, come back out and immediately come at you after seeing a gun. I mean, if I saw a gun on somebody, I don't know if I would uh, want to grab him by the throat. Right. And that hug or bear hug, I've often wondered about that. And I'm thinking if that was like a test to see if he was going to be able to pick me up or see if he was going to be able to manhandle me to a certain extent, because all that was bam, bam, bam. It was, you know, pulling up the shirt, seeing that, picking me up, goes to the bathroom. As soon as he comes out, bam, everything. Mm -hmm. So all of that was in just a matter of minutes, really. And, you know, I'm like you, you know, if I see that on somebody, I'm not messing with them. I played so many scenarios through in my head of what could have happened, what would have happened, what should have happened. You know, I think the way it played out is the best case because any side outside of that now, I don't know who, I don't know what happens. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happens to me. I don't know what happens to my family. I mean, obviously best case scenario would have been for him to leave and, you know, none of this happened. Yeah. But if something was going to happen. I would got to think that this was the the best case scenario as far as like now that I know the ending because it very well could have went bad for me and mm-hmm. things t- took a different turn. But, you know, the unknown of how it could have went where if it would have been, you know, a month later and he got me coming out of my house when I wasn't expecting it, he could have killed me. You know, let's say if you're looking at data for anything, right? And I have this thing about fractional business right. that costs extra money. Right. Fractional business costs extra money that's not needed in the system, because I think we're at a point now where everything needs to be birthed the right way or rebirth. Mm -hmm. So if I apply this philosophy to your situation and you look at the data, you know, you had supporting data, supporting uh, confessions from a CSI guy, supporting confessions from your lawyer, supporting uh, confessions from other people involved in the case. And you think about the data that was collected, but because of biases, right? Because my process eliminates bias, right? 
these biases probably cost the system and you more money than it should have cost when you think about it, if you break it down from that perspective. Oh, wow. and, I, and I try to apply this to like every conversation that I do mm-hmm. because, I, I, because this, this process is linear to everything and everybody. Right. So when you look at your data, you have supporting information, right? And these people want to run down the road and, and cost the system more money, cost you more money. And at the end of the day, it's really about their ego. Yeah. They don't want to admit that they're wrong. Yeah. Because, and we talked about this off air, when someone says, I've done this in self-defense, the state has a duty to investigate that because it's not a situation where, you know, the guy's dead and I'm saying, I didn't do that. I don't know how it happened. You know, it wasn't me. I'm telling them, hey, this happened. He attacked me. I responded in self-defense. They had, they, there was no way they could have done a proper investigation because they decided they were going to charge me within 48 hours. Mm-hmm. So there's no, you can't get test. This ain't CSI Miami. You can't get tests back in 48 hours. You can't get results back for this, that, or the other. I think it was almost a year before the sled report come back showing that he had prescription pills, alcohol, and steroids in his system. Almost a full year before mm-hmm. this happened. And obviously, you know as well as I do, there's no statute of limitations on murder. They didn't have to charge me as quick as they did. Mm-hmm. They could have waited. They could have collected evidence, built their case. And, you know, had they later on, they decided, hey, there's enough evidence that this guy's story don't add up. They could have arrested me. Yeah. But they jumped it. And then once I think stuff started coming out, the story started being figured out and unraveling. Now, if you say, well, maybe we made a mistake. Now you look bad. Now you got egg on your face. Yeah. And that's the thing is they don't want to look bad. And, you know, I don't know if they knew that I was going to go get an Andy Savage. I wasn't going to get a a public defender in this situation, obviously. But that's why so many people take plea deals is because when they get in these situations to where if police charge someone and they can't properly, you know, go hire a good attorney, they got to get a public defender. They're going to broker a plea deal because if someone's looking at 17 years and they say, all right, well, they'll plea it to 10, maybe good behavior, you get out a little bit less than that. That's going to be appealing to someone mm-hmm. to, to not do 15 or 20 years or whatever. You know, you can get a half the time cut off. So that's why the conviction rates are so high for a lot of the district attorneys and solicitors. We have solicitors here. But that's why their conviction rates are so high because of so many plea deals that was brokered. I was not going to take a plea deal. Mm-hmm. Andy asked me if they offered me one, even if one was, you know, had the the contributing factor to it with no jail time. Like had they pled it all the way down to involuntary manslaughter time served, mm-hmm. which meant I wouldn't go to jail at the end of the day. That's basically what it would mean is I wouldn't go to jail. I would have to plead guilty to involuntary manslaughter, but no jail time. Now they didn't offer me this. This is hypothetical, but it's that carrot of mm-hmm. freedom that you know, you don't have to worry about going to jail. So what, what are you, I know you have a podcast now and, and what are you doing with the podcast and where do we find the podcast? So the podcast is uh, it's on YouTube. It's anywhere you get your audio podcast. It's on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, um, and it's called Crime and Entertainment. And kind of the, the basis of that is, you know, when I was listening to the Wrongful Conviction podcast, um, obviously because of my situation, that kind of parlayed into true crime, me listening to that, which mm-hmm. swept the country during, you know, the pandemic. Everybody was into that. And I was thinking that, you know, this might be something I could do, might kind of fill my time. And I didn't want to do fully true crime. I wanted to kind of mix both because I'm a big movie watcher and, you know, television. And so the name Crime and Entertainment was born. And I interview everyone from TV stars to movie stars to 
guys that went undercover, that were law enforcement, guys that were former, you know, mafia members, drug smugglers, everybody across the board, wrestlers. And then since then, I've actually tried to use this pod, this podcast and this platform that I've created for myself to go share this story because my story is unique in the way that, like, I'm not, you know, a career criminal. I'm not. I'm just your average, everyday, blue-collar worker that mm-hmm. owns a gun, like probably nine out of every ten people in the South, and, you know, just got caught up in a situation to where a short-sidedness from a detective almost landed me in jail. And it's yeah. really turned my perspective around of when I see something on TV, used to, I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm glad they caught the guy. They arrested him. Now, I don't think that way. Yeah. I think of, okay, well, what you know, what really happened? What's the whole story? I need to hear the whole story before I start to pass judgment. Because now, once since it's happened to me, I just I look at everything from a new set of eyes. So well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Yes, and Great story, and hopefully everybody can learn something uh, from this story about the criminal justice system, and maybe there's some ways we can improve the system and get better. But hope everybody enjoyed the Unimpressed Podcast today. This has been Wade Williamson, and I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.